0: This is the EWN Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy.
2: Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure today of introducing Mike Gallo. Mike is the uh, Director of Research Development at the University of California, Irvine, and Mike, if you can describe for individuals and listeners uh, what your role is and what you do, that would be great.
3: Okay, so, so I'm a research development professional, which is a field that has really emerged within the last 10 years or so, and primarily to help institutions create or develop more research, uh, uh, research proposals and higher quality research proposals um, primarily because, uh, although it looks when you look at a, a chart that the funding, available funding or federal funding has gone up, if you if you control for inflation, that line mm-hmm. flattens out and sometimes even dips uh, below. Uh, so over the last 25 years, you're dealing with about the same amount of you know true money. Um, but at the same time, the number of researchers and the number of research universities and colleges and just labs getting into the, the research game have has increased incredibly. So you have more people competing for the same amount of dollars. And as I joke with people, that's the definition of competition. And I had a former boss, I worked at Rutgers, I'm a Jersey guy. Um who said you know 30 years ago uh, review panels were trying to discern between good and uh, good and bad grants and now're trying to discern between excellent and exceptional grants. So the you know the, the funding levels and success rates have dropped. Um, so research development has stepped in where people like myself who you know I'm PhD educated, but not, not everyone is but they're academicians of some sort, have applied their knowledge of research, their knowledge of of universities to help faculty um, do what they do best, which is focus on the science and and coming up with new ideas and we help them present them in a winning way or hopefully in a winning way. Um, So at UCI, as uh, Ben now well knows, there's a number of us. There's a number of us in our little village, um, and I'm in the central office. So I always call our, you know, our structure a hub and spoke model. So I'm in the hub, but it's interesting because though I'm in the hub, I these people do not report to me. They um, they report to their individual deans or institute, you know, leaders. And I serve in the central office primarily as a a resource to them. Um, And so that's what we're doing. And so to a person, if it's in humanities or biosciences or chemistry or or engineering, we're helping our deans um, help the faculty uh, in putting in identifying opportunities and then responding to them um, in ways that in, enhance, you know, the dollars that we can bring in for research.
2: Um, so, do you vet? Very good. What's up? Do you vet opportunities? So, like, if a faculty member has, let's say, five different research topics or areas that they want to pursue, is part of your job? helping them to discern and go through a process of determining which yes. one would be most successful at winning right. aside from, let's say, coaching or working with them through the process of making sure it's a successful grant win.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, when you work with faculty, you sort of get all types. Some Sometimes you have faculty who who um, are a little paralyzed and maybe they've been funded in the past and, and now they, they uh, have hit a dry patch um, or they're stuck on a specific area of research. And even though that research may have sort of had its day, that's what they believe they know. And then you have other faculty who just apply to everything.
0: Uh-huh.
3: And that's not necessarily good either, because they're not really thoughtfully thinking about a specific possibility and opportunity. So, you know, we, we in, in that, in that sense of working with all sort of all different types, Um, you know, the young, there's a lot of energy put to, to young investigators because they're brand new and being a faculty member, you know, as they say, is a tough gig. There's so much going on and to actually find time um, to, to apply for uh, research that really is going to keep you alive in the, in academia is really daunting. So we put a lot of energy there, but um, what, yes, we do vetting, we, we, we kind of take all comers, but there are, ty- um, what's interesting is although there are, we call them research development officers, although there are RDOs across the university, um, it's often an office of one. Sometimes, If you're lucky, these offices can be two. So it's very funny to say, oh, it's the office of research in in uh, in the school of medicine. There they you know they have a gaudy number of three. Um, so <laughs> there is a, there is a bandwidth issue, and you know I'm in the the central office, which really sounds lofty. Um, there's two of us, and so I ha- also have an editorial director who does all the. Um, across the board does the editing for proposals but she's retiring at the you know at the end of the the spring so everyone's panicking about that um so there is a bandwidth issue and so you do yeah you do have to vet because there's only so many of you and so much of your you know so much of your time um and so you 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 find you we tend to be a very creative sort because you have to find you know, ways to help people um, without sort of maxing out.
2: Which I think is something interesting that you say, like when you highlight the creativity part and the like small but mighty, I guess it comes to mind yeah. in terms of like capacity, because it's almost like your office and your role could be almost kind of like a center of innovation to a certain extent, because as you talk about this competition for research funding, right, and the idea that it's a very um, competitive landscape, because there's a lot of parties seeking a very small pool of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, in general, the public, and I've seen this, the trend to for the federal government to contribute dollars to research, it's mixed, right? Or if it's some in some cases, it's declined, actually, in terms of total dollar. So it's not just only the inflation part of it. So you're kind of got these two dynamics. But the one thing that came to mind as you were talking is, and the reason I asked about this vetting question is, it's almost like as if it's finding the right PIs that have the right ideas, right, that are significant enough to develop a workforce and would resonate with the federal agencies that want to use taxpayer dollars to build industry, build jobs, strengthen the U S economy. So you need the PIs that get that right. The think big or go home, you know, like mentality Mm -hmm. have the right ideas, but at the same time, it's almost like we need to find out which ideas are more successful than others that, you know, it's almost tracking to see what the federal government resonates with and what the, the funders really want to see in terms of topical areas and expertise and elaboration of what the potential outcomes will be so it's, you almost can be that innovation office to a certain right. extent. Right.
3: And we, and we use different resources to become that office. Um, many you know the R1 uh, University, so research one, which is the the you know the highest level of research. Um, we we have a firm in Washington D.C. that we you know contract with, who can sort of be our feet on the ground um, in at Congress uh, and give us that view. Because again, all all of these things, you could spend all your time focusing on any of them. And so you certainly can't focus on all of them. So I, um, we use a group called McAllister and Quinn and they are very good at federal relations but they are also unique in that they will actually um, help project manage uh, uh, proposals, especially big ones. Um, and so I, I often say that they help us become bigger than we really are because uh, like, um, just last week, we put in, or actually, I'm lost sorry. On Monday, we put in a renewal for our cancer center, our comprehensive mm-hmm. cancer center. And there's only 40 in the country, and we're one of them. Um, this was a process of like 18 months of work. Mm-hmm. A way you could pull someone off um, what he or she are doing, and there'd be a lot of he or she's to, in order to do what you know, you could get the, this firm to do. So we bring in the firm and they manage the process and then I manage them. Um, and so I use that technique quite a bit for large for large programs that we couldn't possibly, you know, do on our own. Um, but when you were talking about the PIs and, and sort of finding the ideas, um, that is the key. I mean, it has to you can have a great idea or you see a program for 25 million. You think, you know, you see the dollar figures. It's like, okay, we're going for this, but unless you have a PI who's really, you know, dedicated to this, it's not going to get off the ground. Um, Top down doesn't really work this way, Mm -hmm. uh, this way. Um, You have to have a researcher who's really sort of burning to to address a question or to, you know, solve a research problem or a medical problem. Um, When I give presentations about grant writing, I remind people, and I've given these to, you know, professionally and even to undergrads who are starting in the process. I say, even though this sounds crass, you know, remember that a, a grant proposal is a sales pitch, and and so but remember what you're pitching, which is you're 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 not pitching yourself and you're not pitching your institution. The the agency or the foundation is looking to invest in a result. And that's what you are getting at. And so if it's you know, like right now is a perfect example. How how do you protect people against covid? That's the result that people want. And so you can go on and on about sort of your research and your background, but they want to know why you, why this idea, and what is it going to do for them, and how does it translate, you know, what NSF calls the broader impacts. What are the broader impacts of this result? Why is this result significant? And you have to write that way. Um, and so you, you have to, you know, it, it's sort of, you know, I, I think I said this to Ben, it's like, you know, it's the elevator pitch. Like you, you, you find out that you're in the elevator with the director of the NSF, you're on floor one, and you're getting off at floor 20, you have 24 floors to, you know, to pitch an idea. That's what you're trying to do.
2: So uh, like, I think what resonates and I don't know about So I always tell everyone I'm a private industry person. I've spent 20-something years in private industry, but went to business school. So pure, like you're speaking my language. But sometimes what I compare things to is it's almost like investors, right? Like when you're a company trying to start something, a startup, you make a pitch, right? Similar, same concepts, right? Only you're pitching to investors as to why should they hand over their checkbook or why should they give their Mm -hmm. money to you, and how are you going to guarantee? to them that you can produce those results. You can right. get what it is that they said. And at the same time, I think to your point to funders, how can you also elevate the person that's approving that because they're trying okay. to you know, look good in front of their boss whose boss is trying to look good to someone else, right? There's someone who's always answering to somebody else. So if your idea, right? Somebody's research idea is phenomenal, and it's articulated the right way, and it's gonna make that funder, whoever signs off on it. Mm-hmm. Joe Schmo at blah 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 agency signs off on this, but it goes large scale and it goes big. Joe is gonna be super happy, and oh, so yeah. is Joe Schmo's boss, and so is the you know, they're gonna make the agency look good. The agency's gonna get more money, right? So it's also like strategically very for lack of better description, though, but true, like political, because there is a system by which things are operating. Yeah. And I think the more that people dial into that system, regardless of what it is, right, business, academics, government, it doesn't matter. But that momentum can really be pretty phenomenal if people dial into that really well.
3: Right. And you, you have this sort of collection of visions. Um, and people talk about an agency like the NSF, Well, the NSF is broken into all these different directorates and directorates, they have program managers. Well, each of these program managers, you know, they don't serve for life. They come in for a period of time. They have their vision of what they would like to accomplish. And so they're looking, they're looking for researchers to enact their vision. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and in, at the DOD, a department of defense, this is very much pronounced um, where, you know, like at DARPA, someone comes in, have, you know, three or four years to get their program off the ground. Um, And so relationship buildings, everything, because they, you know, they're gonna, they're going to utilize your research to advance their vision. Exactly. Um, And it is very much at the Department of Defense by definition, it's hierarchical. I mean, this is how, it's exactly what you're talking about is um, every result every successful result um, amounts to credit for everyone in that.
2: Everyone else looks good in that whole chain, but it's the person who's reading it, right? The decision maker as to whether or not they approve it or don't approve it. Like to your point, it has to resonate strongly enough with that particular audience to not only check the box for everybody above them, but like you said, their own passions or interests or how they envision it. I remember I had a conversation with one of our clients funders, like, cause they did a huge exhibit. They brought everybody there. The funder came and she spoke to exactly that key piece. The whole reason she has sub- subsequently had approved funding is because she saw the vision of how big this thing, right. Or this topic or this area could be such that that's why she even told the PIs, that's why five years ago, I signed off on this, right. But it's like that kind of insight and advice that you're talking about, that you have the wealth of knowledge and to be able to like coach and, and direct individuals is super powerful, because you've dialed into this, like what I call the secret sauce, or the the magic, right, of what it takes. But there's almost this piece that you're talking about, too, which is getting the right innovative ideas, the right topics, the right pieces that like, even go beyond the articulation so that, and that's hard because that's creativity, that's um, passion. That's, you know, how many ideas are out there? Someone told me try to save the world because you know, the, like you said, the virus is here. How do we save the world? All of us can come up with as many ideas as we want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the solution, right? That doesn't right. mean that that's the magic sauce that truly is going to save the world
3: yeah uh, That's
2: hard
3: yeah this is this is a you know grant writing and and research development and and just research in general is a, is a significance game like you have to you have to convince people what's significant but you also have to know what's significant um not just because oh you know I'm good at this research or you know but what what is it about it and Research is fascinating because sometimes you're talking about, you're starting with something really big. You know, you think about like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They go okay. after the big, you know, world changing ideas. Um, but sometimes that starts in the lab where someone finds, you know, like a protein or, and, and, in interaction and that over you know, many years or a generation grows into something that becomes translational into society. So, you know, research is is fascinating.
2: So I have a um, question, can you re can you what was the terminology? Not back engineer it, but can you re-engineer it? Because I think traditionally, right, it's always and I'm just talking out loud, but traditionally it's like you said, you come up with this great idea, you work on it for 20, 30 years, 40 years come up with this discovery, right? And then launch it. But there's almost this competing interest, which is we don't have time, right? We don't, we're up against this like time factor and how many dollars later did it, like pharma companies go through this, right? Like until they find that big drug, they're pouring money into research to find that big drug that will be, you know, Botox or it'll be, you know, something that just goes viral that people want to consume. So how do you re-engineer that in the sense that, and I was going to ask this question, like utilizing private industry to a certain extent to see kind of the end result or market trends and then work backwards to then figure out how does that research relate to that market trend or that captivity of something or consumer or whatever it is, and then focus on it that way. And is that possible?
3: Yeah, and... I think my answer is that research has a lot of different purposes is that sometimes it, it is translational. um, And then other times, I mean, universities exist to develop new knowledge and sometimes it's just for the sake, you know, not just for the sake of knowledge, you know, like inert knowledge, but you know, knowledge that other people can take and run with and into different directions. Um, And so we, in what you were talking about, the vetting is you know part of the vetting is the balance of you know, knowing what's you know kind of it's it's sort of like you know, you're like a movie director or something you you, you want to determine what your next project's going to be um, and of course there's a lot of pressure for the you know for the blockbuster and the big the big project um, but some of the smaller research small you know uh, is is equally important. Um, so yeah, it's it's hard with the reverse engineering
2: because it's almost like you're. It's like the traditional model is like almost having a crystal ball and hoping it's that blockbuster, right? Hoping right. it's that. But if you reverse engineered it in terms of what does the market need, what's their problem, and almost connect the research idea with solving that problem, it, you're already like connecting it already to industry and growth and right. job creation. So you're almost guaranteeing a result more quickly from the front end. Right. I'm,
3: I'm smiling because another thing I do when I talk about grant writing is I always say when you're doing the summary page or the overview in the very beginning, it's the one page that everyone, you know, everyone's going to read.
2: Yeah. Cause by page 20, they're like, um, okay. right, exactly. <laughs> and so,
3: and I always say, you know, start with what, what is the phenomenon that you're looking at? You know, why is it important? What's the, again, what's the significance? And then what is the state of the art approach to that phenomenon now, or that, that problem, that issue? And why isn't, why isn't it enough? Like what's missing? Because if it was enough, there'd be no reason you know, to research this. So what's the gap? And then what, how is what you're proposing you know, filling that gap. So and and that's that. In a nutshell, is your proposal um, because and that's your reverse engineering, which is you you identify the problem first and you talk about why it's so vexing. It's, you know, what haven't we pinned down yet, and then what are you offering that that maybe solves the problem or solves. A part of the problem that someone else then can build off of and solve the next part of the problem. That's, I mean, that- and
2: that's why I think of I think of innovation because what you're highlighting is the same thing. When you start a company, when you come up with a startup company, right? Is the problem big enough, deep enough, costly enough that people are going to turn over their checkbooks and pay mm-hmm. money for? And are you solving a hypothetical what you think is a problem? or is actually a problem that people yeah. will put money where their mouth is and pay for it right and it's right. kind of almost the same a similar characteristic because like what you're saying is you're approaching funders to decide whether or not they're going to fund something or not they want like a guaranteed result like they're trying to maximize the ch- the chances that it's going to be a guaranteed result and the vision that that party is painting is going to be achieved and is it big enough to look good enough that you're using taxpayer dollars to, especially with federally funds, right? It's different in private sector, but I mean, federally funded dollars that taxpayers are paying and using, you know, contributing to the federal government. So it's it's interesting. And are you seeing a shift too, in terms of funding, whether or not it's coming from federal government versus like supplementing it with private industry money or
3: yeah, what does that I look mean, like? The, um You know, NIH, you know, Health and Human Services is always the largest player, usually followed by, you know, followed by the NSF. But as the funding rates have gone down, you know, um, non-federal sources have become bigger and bigger. Uh, Philanthropic sources Mm -hmm. uh, are, are being, you know, reached to. And that's always hard because... Again, I mean, you know, someone who has the money to, to fund something, you yeah, usually wanna fund something specific, something that's, you know, personal to them. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's hard to kinda always find a match for that and then sort of manage expectations and all that. But yes, you know, people are, I, um, the reason I was running late is I was just, uh, we have a new school of pharmaceutical sciences mm-hmm. And they were trying to find, you know, trying to generate a list of sort of the the unusual suspects. So, you know, besides NSF and NIH, where can my folks look for? So, I was I was scouring the internet and going through certain things, and then I looked at the clock and said, "Oh my god!" So, um, but that's yeah. Well, so I have the- an
2: idea for you, and I don't know if this is a strategic approach, yeah. but I was just talking to Ben on some of my ideas about private industry is have schools ever thought about being the workforce pipeline for private industry and to recruit from? So for instance, if it's a pharmaceutical industry, could you convince the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech companies that, hey, can your corporate foundations contribute to UCI, blah, 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 school, whoever it is, right? we will create the human capital, the pathway for which yeah. you will hire those, those individuals, but we're training them. And so therefore it's a win-win because on the private yeah, industry smiling. side, right? This is
3: done. This is you know, the
2: private industry side. They're like, yeah. wait a minute, I have the brightest kids that I'm interviewing, but there's something missing because I have to retool them when they enter right. my workforce. What if we could approach them when they're younger, more passionate and train them from earlier on so that as soon as i get them from day 1 they're ready, they're ready to, go. to go yeah
3: yeah this is done uh, often you see this in en- you know engineering disciplines where they they have done this and so yeah no it it is it is true and i'm looking at the time and i want to i want to tie something in that 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 ben talked about you know evaluation and and you know how you know how this helps us is we're talking a lot about significance and selling things. And when you're dealing, you know, foundations, but certainly with the federal, um, federal agencies and the federal government, you see all the time of people saying, why are we giving this money to NIH or to NSF and we're, we're funding research about salamanders in Africa or something like that? You know, why is this important? And so, so much of it becomes what your metrics are. Why, again, you know, justifying significance, and that's what evaluation, you know, does. And so, in some of the STEM fields, you know, where everything is quantitative, you can make that argument. And Ben, Ben was uh, facilitating a call earlier where. Amanda Swain from humanities kept saying, well you know I'm in the humanities, everything is sort of you know uh, is not you know nailed down in that way, but you can still make the argument for significance. You have to do it differently, perhaps it's interviewing you know, perhaps it's through qualitative methods of, of you know going through documents and all that. Each field, kind of each field, each issue, each project lends itself to a certain way to evaluate that. Um, I'm in the field of research development, and and we're, you know, 10 years old. And one of the things we, you know, the national organization grapples with. I mean, every year it comes up, and is how do you justify your importance to the research? enterprise, because so much of what we do is behind the scenes. Um, and it's hard. You know, you could say, oh, it's dollars. But it's not just dollars. I, when I worked at Rutgers, um, I, it was sort of like this classic you know, natural experiment. I had a colleague, and we worked in the School of uh, Arts and Sciences. Just by chance, I worked on the hard science area. He worked in the social science area. And the leadership there was under this false belief that dollars equaled success. Well, he, he could double the number of grants that he brought in than, than I brought in. And he was never going to make the money that the hard sciences, you know. So you just, you know, economists and uh, you know, social scientists or Hispanic studies. I mean, I worked with someone in Hispanic studies She was euphoric because she got a $117,000 grant and thought she was set, like her career was set for life. And she, I mean, her enthusiasm was, you know, contagious. And I felt so good about myself. But to a scientist, a hard scientist, $117,000 is a workshop.
2: Yeah. (laughs) and so it pays for lunch maybe (laughs)
3: exactly so you bring in a couple of students and so you cannot judge things by dollars Mm -hmm. um but then it then the question comes how how do you um and that's that's the line of work that you you two folks are in um and it it's it's difficult um even your point
2: it's like there's a Multidisciplinary approach where there's a value to the sciences and the arts, right? And if you take the quantitative and the qualitative, it's also what people also refer to. Things are also an art and a science, right? Mm-hmm. And really kind of capture those fundamentals. I think that even in the social sciences, even if a hundred thousand is a big win, like you're, the example you're using, if it's combined with let's like psychology is combined with some science, right? Neuroscience or Um, Some art is combined with some science, you get really creative and innovative. And there's a lot of like new industry and new opportunities that can truly exist if a multidisciplinary approach is really embraced. Because, you know, one thing that, you know, I was a conversation on yesterday with an individual where we're talking about jobs, right? there's not only one specific area of your field that you majored in that you are now applying in the workforce. It's like, you need to know business, you need to know medicine, mm-hmm. you need to know communications, you need to know like, it's almost, you need to know everything in this world and be a generalist. And so I think in that mindset, it's like, what ca- how can the arts, how can the social sciences combine with the sciences, the physical sciences or the engineering science related fields combined together to create something new.
3: Yeah. I mean research is really grappling with this now. And one of the fields that has emerged is what they're calling team science or team scholarship. Um, And so right now, you know, we're in such a unique, you know, climate, you know, nationally you know, dollars matter. And so the the research funding is trying to do what you're talking about, these sort of uh, collaborative grants. And it creates a real challenge because humanists talk very differently than, you know, than engineers and, and engineers might even sort of dismiss their importance um and so you have to figure out how do you get in a room or and even the agencies have to figure out how do you structure an opportunity so that it's not so that the social scientists and the humanists aren't just add-ons which is what always sort of happens um and so um
2: it's the world of I think and I think it's the world of collaboration right agencies can also not think singularity based on their own mission, their own focus, because that's not for lack of better description, the real world. Right. And so like, as an example, I always refer to even my own life, like I was a political science who went to work for an accounting firm, and then went to go work in healthcare consulting. I mean, I've done so many different things, software, you name it. I was never trained in any of those things. Right. right? But it always like was hard when I was picking a major 20 something years ago, because my mom was a teacher, my dad was a PhD. They knew they went into college as an engineer or an education. That's how they came out. And that's how they spent 40 years of their career. Right. But there's been a shift where not everything that you studied is what you end up becoming or staying with. Right. Like, I think there's a statistic, like most people change jobs and have five jobs or five to seven jobs mm-hmm. in their lifetime or something like that. Right. So if that's the case, and if that's even more so the case for the next generation and the younger generation, that means they need to know the whole world. like, And that means there's a convergence of everything that has to occur. So it's kind of interesting to see where the world will go. And I really appreciate our conversation, Mike, because I don't know about myself, but I think with the listeners, there's a lot of things to get excited about because this just opens up a world of opportunity, but it's also a world of there's so much that can be accomplished as, and the only limitation is the limitation we place on ourselves. Right. So if all of us are open to change and open to collaboration and open to thinking differently, how much more can we accomplish in this pandemic, despite there being a crisis, despite systems breaking down, despite everything seeming like it's havoc, there's actually a huge opportunity here, which I hope you know, as people are listening that they hear that and we can all like grab hold of that. And I think that's phenomenal, exciting. So I really appreciate your time of sharing what you're working on, how it's, how it's evolved and kind of your pain points so that as listeners <laughs> and as supporters, we can help be a part of that change.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it. This was a fun conversation and, uh, and so you're, you're in a great line of work because you kind of get to, you're, you, you get to get in, like like I do, you get involved, you know, on a project by project basis. And it sort of adds up to something and you start to identify trends and things that you can bring to your next projects. And it, it's, it's fun. It's fun work. I mean, if you're, you're someone who doesn't want to get bogged down in one thing, you know, we're in the right, we're in the right spot.
2: Yeah, so I'm super excited. So I appreciate your time and sharing with all of us, um, what you've been going through, but also what you're seeing. And Um, would look forward to further conversation.
3: Yes, it's a deal. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as TheMarkUSA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes.
0: Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs